Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. Once again, we are back. And yes, we did have a bit of a break for a couple of weeks. Um, but after starting up last week, we're back. And we've actually had a lot of discussions this week about the future of Creation Conversations. And we're going to be giving you some exciting updates as we go on a little bit through the program. Well, it's great to see people watching already and people getting into the uh, into the chat. Thank you very much, uh, Doki Doki. And for hello to, to Lynn Colson and to Young Earth Creation, who are all here and watching. It's great to see you all. And yes, it'll be important to stay tuned from the very beginning going forwards. And we'll give you some updates about that as we go. But we have the whole team with here us here this evening. Uh, Dr. Diane Eager and John Mackay are together in the same room once again, as uh, I believe that Diane has flown up to help with the preparations for the new museum opening, but we'll let them speak about that in a little bit. We've got Craig Hawkins, we've got Dr. Glenn Wilson and his wife Ruby, although they will be uh, leaving us after a little while because they've got to run and get involved with some uh, kids ministry, I believe. And we've also got Sam Jenkins as well. So it's great to see everybody here. G'day, g'day. It's great to see everybody in the chat as well. Let's dive into it because we've got some rather big updates uh, going forward. Yesterday, we had a big long meeting with the whole team with regards to creation conversations. And we'll mention this a few times throughout the stream to give everybody a bit of a chance to understand what's going on. But the biggest change is that we are going to be separating out the ministry updates and the creation research content that we do on creation conversations. What that really means for you guys is that you need to be here ready and watching because we're going to dive straight into it when we start creation conversations. It sometimes takes us 30 to 40 minutes to get through all the welcomes and ministry updates and all that kind of stuff. No, we're going to dive straight into the content that we're going to be dealing with that week and getting some real solid answers out there for you. We're going to, of course, keep the engagement. So continue to ask your questions, continue to get involved in the chat, because yes, we're going to have question and answer times in every single program. But what it does mean is that we will be doing a separate program every so often with the creation evidence news uh, that we started a little while back with me and Diane, and we're going to push that forwards again. We're going to be doing ministry updates as well, which will go out every so often on our YouTube channel so you can find out what we're doing in creation research, as well as some of the new and amazing discoveries that the Lord blesses us with all the time. But you are going to want to be able to tune in. That's 9 p.m. UK time, 3 p.m. USA Central time, or well, about five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, um, depending on where you are in Australia. Uh, but we will be going straight into content starting from next week. So do make sure that you're here and tuned in and ready to go. That does mean, however, we are going to be trimming down on the length of time that we're going to be doing creation conversations for. So we uh, started to give you the big perspective. Me and John started doing this um, over three years ago now, and uh, we kind of did 
the odd little thing here and there. And then we started a regular program, which was 30 minutes long. And then Sam recommended we do it a bit longer. So we jumped up to the two hours mark. And it's been really positive over the last couple of years that we've been doing a two hour program. But to be honest with you, it's just become to the point where we spend a lot of time talking about the ministry for the first 30 to 40 minutes and not really into the great content. So we want to keep the great content and we want to keep the engagement that we have with you. So we'll be going forward with a one hour 30 minute program starting from next week we're going to be diving straight into content from the beginning so make sure you're here and ready and watching now the next exciting update that we have uh sam i'm going to go over to you to explain what's uh, going on with this next update all right okay so um <clears throat> there's been a bit of sort of uh, as we said in in our uh, we had a meeting yesterday was uh, there's a lot of sort of ideas floating around about the content and things like that and things we can do with the uh, the channel and, and one of the things that i sort of floated the idea of that sort of immediately sort of launched into heavy traction um and has been accelerated quite a bit um is we are launching something um, and I'm going to play a very quick 30-second uh, video right now, and this should tell you all you need to know. Yes, that is right. We are launching a brand new TV channel called Creation Research TV. There we go. Uh, so this has sort of been a little bit of a brainchild from me. And then I floated the idea to everyone. Everyone was just like, why have we not done this sooner? Um, but yeah, so uh, starting from Monday, uh, 9 p.m. UK time, we will be broadcasting a live 24-7 uh, TV channel right here on YouTube that you can watch uh, as and when you please. Uh, it'll have all kinds of things on there. It's going to have all of our creation research content. Uh, so we'll have uh, some creation conversations on there. We're going to have uh, some of the, the on the um, uh, uh, the rocks cry out series. Uh, some of our documentaries as well. Uh, the uh, trips around the museum series. Uh, there's a whole bunch of plethora of content uh, coming out. Um, so you you really really don't want to miss this. Uh, this is this is a big big thing for our channel, um, and I'm super excited. And to add just a little bit of extra content, um, one of the things that we, we reasons we wanted to do this is because now that we're developing things like our museum projects, which are all over the world, uh, we want to have a way of being able to play creation research content in our museums as people come in and, you know, uh, when you sit in the cafe and you watch stuff or if you run a Christian coffee shop or you are a church which has a cafe associated with it or you play videos in your foyer, we wanted to have a resource which people could play creation research content all the way uh, around the clock, no matter where you are in the world. And the great thing is, is because um, I've just seen a, a question from um, Douglas Buffet about, um, will you need a TV license? For the Americans who get confused about these things, this is uh, something that you need in Britain. I don't know if you need this in the States, uh, in, in Australia, John, um, but certainly in the UK, if you want to watch any live 
um, television or news channel, you need to have a television license. This is exempt from that. It is not a news channel. It is content that we've created. And so going out on YouTube by content that we've created live just means that it plays as if it was a, uh, a TV channel. So you do not need a TV license in this, this country uh, to be able to watch it. And I don't think you need TV licenses, certainly in the States. I'm not sure about Australia, but uh, it would apply the same kind of uh, rule. So no, you don't need a TV license. But I mean, Glenn, you were, uh, we were at your church not too long back and uh, you have television that's playing in the, in the foyer all the time. Yes, I thought this would be excellent for it. It would yeah. be great content they could play during the day as well as during the four services. Absolutely. So it's uh, it's it's great to be able to have all of that content out there 24-7 so you can just tune in and watch it. You can leave it playing on at the background. It's uh, going to be better TV than most what's on the BBC these days anyway. Um, speaking of the BBC, very briefly, uh, we came across a, a rather interesting video um, that uh, I found in the archives of the Creation Research Centre. John, do you just want to briefly mention what this video is and uh, what we're going to be doing with it? Sure. Uh, and by the way, you don't need a TV license in Australia anymore. There you go. Uh, so that's good. And the museum will be looking forward to tuning in so that it can be constantly accessed at our museums around the planet as well. So thank you, Sam, and for all who put this together. But in terms of the BBC, um, as we were leading up to Darwin's anniversary, you know, way back in the early 2000s, etc., um, I was asked to do a program on the BBC on a very prominent, uh, almost investigative journalism, uh, critical journalism, with a, a very, very prominent interviewer. And the interesting thing was he was noted for being an attack journalist. He'd uh, go straight into the subject, straight into you, uh, try and expose your weaknesses, etc. And uh, the good news is after about five minutes when I just gently answered his questions, his whole, whole attack just sort of subsided and almost gave me the entire program after that. And it ended up being not only a program that was viewed by 25 million people around the world, it was absolutely spectacular. But the funny thing happened was um, after I left that program, I was told by the manager as I was walking out of the building, I would never again be invited to the BBC. That's the price of success. And he, he has stuck with that. But also any evidence that I ever was on hard talk has totally disappeared from the BBC. So unfortunately for them, we've now found a copy in our archives, haven't we, Joe? We have indeed. The great thing about the BBC is when you go on to their um, channel, if you're being interviewed or you participate in a show or something like that, they will provide you with a hard copy, um, the raw footage hard copy of all of your content. It's part of the, uh, you know, the license to use your image kind of thing laws that we have here in the UK. They have to provide this for you for your use. So we have hold of that and that's great. Um, we're going to do a special creation conversations all about that program, some of the background to it. Uh, we're going to show the program during creation conversations and uh, have a bit of discussion afterwards. It's a great program. Stay tuned because we're going to get all this scheduled in the next day or so. Uh, so that's great. And uh, another program that we also happened across in our archives was actually the original debate that John did with Richard Dawkins when he was ambushed by Dawkins and Channel 4 um, a little while back. So. Uh, 
uh, we'll bring all these kind of updates to you as we go forward. But exciting stuff, and I'm particularly excited about the uh, Creation Research TV, the 24-7 channel, which will be launching on Monday. So look out for more information about that and how you can access that on our media channels. But that's great and exciting stuff for sure. Well, the main topic that we're going to be discussing today is going to be around the distribution of people. We're going to talk about Aborigines. We're going to talk about how Aborigines got to Australia. We're going to talk about some of the interesting political things which are going on at the moment um, and some of the, uh, the, the, the difficult things that are going on at the moment. But before we do that, I'm going to go over to Glenn Wilson, Dr. Glenn Wilson, who's going to actually introduce this topic to us because Glenn actually first met Creation Research in Australia. And you were there for what reason, Glenn? So I came in August of 2019, so almost four years ago, and I came for a conference. Now, you know, I've been a scientist for almost 40 years. I've been to a lot of international conferences. This was the International Conference of Gully Erosion. We meet every couple of years. Uh, but this was the first time in Australia, and this was my first time in Australia, and was met, my wife and I were there, and we were met at the airport by none other than John surprises <laughs> and um spent a couple of days with john then we drove on uh, no we were going to drive and he convinced us to fly yes. um we flew up to townsend for the conference and it was like most other conferences you know you meet that first morning everybody's really excited all the scientists gather there were scientists from all over the world and uh like i said i've been to these meetings all over the world but the beginning of this one was caught me by surprise it wasn't like other meetings the host got up there to welcome us and uh, if i remember right first one of the first things he said was um, welcome to australia he says this isn't our country this is the aborigines country they've granted us permission to meet here and then he turned it over to a tribal member uh to welcome us now like i said i've been to many meetings i've never heard that before and well, I think me and several others were kind of looking around like I thought we were in Australia. This was not expected, especially, you know, in America, I've been to many tribal Native American lands, um, never experienced anything like this. So, John, I'm interested in this subject. I wish we could stay here today uh, to hear it all. Um, yeah, really no, that's that's talk. great. We, we understand that you're rushing away to a, a VBS, a, a Bible yes. sort of uh, uh, school, so may the Lord bless you and keep you. Mm. But right at this moment, about starting about 15 minutes ago, the builders started on one of our Aboriginal rooms at the new museum. Uh, commercial, of course, we have our grand opening of our next display uh, next Saturday and Sunday. It's already pretty well booked out. So uh, looking forward to seeing you, Southeast Queenslanders, and a ton of rock from South Australia that I, I was told yesterday is actually arriving, Craig. So somebody else is bringing that up. So that's really, really cool. But you see, one of the things we are learning to have to do in Australia, you uh, actually, well, Diane, you experienced it yesterday. You flew up here. What happened as you landed at the airport? Well, as you land at any airport these days, um, instead of the usual thing, welcome to Brisbane, the temperature is whatever the time is, uh, the first thing you get is uh, welcome to, and they name the local Aboriginal tribe 
country. Um, we acknowledge the Aboriginal elders uh, upon whose land we live, work and fly uh, before you get anything else. And so what you experienced, Glenn, was what they call welcome to country. And it's become almost obligatory for every sort of public or formal meeting these days that's open to the to the outside world. Uh, so, yes, that's a phenomenon that's really taken off in the last few years in Australia. It certainly has, and it's producing controversy, no doubt about it, because quite a few people sitting on that aeroplane feel like getting up and say, it's not their country. Uh, it's, it's, you know, whatever the attitude they have or when they get welcomed in the traditional uh, way, they basically say, we are not glad to acknowledge this ownership. But is it ownership? How do you define ownership? Um, we had a, a school group at Jurassic Ark last, um, what was it, Thursday? And, and that must have been Wednesday it was. So in reality, I said, now listen, you kids are growing up in a Australia that's getting pretty divided by who owns the land, who uses the land, how do you decide that? And I said, here at Jurassic Ark, we are Christians and I'm going to give you a Christian welcome to the country, welcome to the country, welcome to the, uh, the acknowledgement. We acknowledge the traditional owners, Father, Son and Holy Spirit because the whole attitude of land ownership and land rights, which is going to be the subject central here, big referendum coming up in Australia. How do you vote? How do you decide? I'll just show you one bit of evidence which will come up later. Do you uh, see this boomerang? Now, that's not what the natives who uh, come from this area uh, in Australia actually call it. But if you think you're looking at some sort of a snake with multiple eyes, that's a very dominant theme in Aboriginal culture. But you see, last week on one of the news channels, one of the elders from that tribe got up to say he wants the referendum put off. He is not pleased with what's being done. It has no benefit for the Aboriginals at all. And I spoke to a missionary the other night and he said, do you realise what's actually being done? Um, and I had a fascinating conversation about what's going on behind the scenes and how it would not benefit the Aborigines, no matter how the thing is being sold. So that's what our subject is tonight, but within the broader context of distribution of peoples, races, Aborigines, etc., in Australia. And uh, Glenn, you'll have to catch the video replay or, or get the shorts on our new TV channel next week. So Diane's going to go first up here. So Diane, why don't you take over uh, at the present time and uh, then we'll have a, a short thing after that, unless I've overstepped the mark. Um, no, 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 that's good. We're going to go launch straight into it. And also just as a uh, reminder to people who've just come and joined, we had a few updates at the beginning of this program. The most predominant one is that we are slightly changing the format of Creation Conversations so that our ministry reports will be a completely separate program, which will go out uh, every so often. And so from next week, just like Glenn is going to tune in next week, you need to make sure that you are watching from the beginning because we are going to launch straight into the content. We're going to really have a content-focused creation conversations going forward. An hour and a half, we're shortening it slightly to an hour and a half, but it's going to be pure content from the very get-go. So do make sure you tune in from the beginning next week. Diane, I'll get your slides up and it's over to you. 
And while Diane gets her slides up, I want to say goodbye. Uh, we're stepping out. But also, Joe didn't return with a Yankee accent, but I'd like to know if he's drinking Yankee tea. Ice. No, I'm not. I'm drinking my good old British tea here, hot with a splash of milk, which the superior kind. The superior <laughs> tea. <laughs> We're out of here. Love you guys. See you, Glenn. God bless, Glenn. See you later. Diane, we're all up and ready to go. Over to you. Yes, here are a, a few uh, items which we have on our fact file and our uh, question and answer site, which is called uh, Ask John Mackay. Um, the issue of how different people groups ended up in different parts of the world has been something that's been constantly um, uh, researched and uh, questions have been asked about it. And so we've got a few examples here about uh, how the uh, Aborigines ended up in Australia. And uh, there's been some interesting research these days now that we can do all of these gene studies and look at which people groups are related to other people groups and uh, how they may have ended up in the places they, they, they are. Uh, so let's have a, a look at a couple of these. Um, the genome revolution has actually been an enormous help uh, to the whole issue of biblical history and, and creation. So. Here is one study that was done back in 2009, which you can read the details of uh, in the fact file, but it looked at mitochondrial DNA. So that's DNA not in the cell nucleus, but out in the, um, the, the cell components. Um, it studied a lot because it's a very small group of genes and also you've got lots of copies of it. So there are lots of studies done on mitochondrial DNA. It's very useful. And uh, there has been a long-running theory that uh, Aboriginal people originally were related to people who live in India. So now that we can do these gene studies, um, several people, uh, research groups have set out to, to look at this. And this was a study that was done with mitochondrial DNA, looking at what are called India's relic tribe. Now, India, of course, is a, a country with a very large population, and there are lots of what they call tribal uh, groups uh, who live out in the um, in the more rural areas rather than the uh, city areas that we often see in the news. And uh, here are their results. Our results are showing a shared mitochondrial DNA, that's what the mtDNA, their lineage between Indians and Australian Aborigines provides direct genetic evidence of early colonization of Australia through South Asia. In other words, between India and uh, Australia, of course, there are a whole lot of islands. And what they found is that there has to be a link between India and Australia. And the best way to get there is through South Asia. And uh, this is a, a further study. Now, the interesting thing about that 2009 study is uh, that the, in terms of the lifespan or the uh, age of the um, when did this migration happen? They went for the long time ago, the 40,000 years that's in the news uh, everywhere here and in the popular press. This was a further study uh, looking at a number of different groups uh, from the Northern Territory, from Papua New Guinea, which is the island that's just above Australia, uh, and then people from the Philippines and some of those islands that are in between uh, India and uh, Australia, and also from other parts of the world. 
And what they found was that there was genetic mixing between India and northern Australian populations. And because this was uh, involved a lot more genes, um, they uh, calculated how many generations ago this may have happened. And they came up with the answer of 141 and calculated, uh, yeah, 141 generations, right? And then relating that with various assumptions we must add as to how long each generation was. But they came up with an answer of how long ago did this happen? Well, 4,230. So that's uh, a lot different to the sort of 40 to 65,000 years ago that gets thrown around in the popular press these days. Uh, now, another interesting study that came up with a similar answer is not in people, but in dogs. Now, in Australia, we have uh, dogs called dingoes. They are wild dogs, but they can breed with domestic dogs. And a lot of the farmers um, have, I, I, I know some people who, who actually had a dingo crossbreed. They, the, my friends uh, came from central Queensland on the land there. Um, and uh, quite often the dingoes will breed with the farm dogs. So they can breed uh, with the domestic dogs and produce fertile offspring. So there has been a bit of an argument as to whether we should classify dingoes as a separate species. Uh, but uh, because they can breed with the domestic dogs and produce fertile offspring, they're very clearly the same species. And this was a, a study of the... Um, dog genes that was part of this um, debate that was going on as to how to classify the dingoes uh, and some scientists from the Australian Museum actually came up with this conclusion that they were a feral population. Now feral usually refers to animals that uh, were domesticated and then have gone wild. So the dingoes were described as a feral population of an ancient breed of domestic dog that was brought to Australia by humans about 4,000 years ago. Now, as dogs are often associated with humans, uh, maybe that's another clue as to how long the Aborigines have actually been here. So how would they get from India to Australia? There's an awful lot of ocean between India and Australia now, but we have to remember that the sea levels have changed in the past and even the evolutionists who want the very long ages for the age of the earth and the age of, um, uh, of humanity will admit that in the past sea levels have been lower, especially associated uh, with the ice age. So if you look at this map, um, which includes uh, <clears throat> how deep the oceans are, uh, those lighter areas around the islands and around the uh, main continent of Australia there are the continental shelves where the sea is a lot shallower. So that if the sea levels goes, goes down, uh, actually the size of Australia increases. It's already pretty big, but uh, it, it increases by a significant amount. And a lot of those islands would have actually been joined up or separated by a lot smaller distances. So in times when the sea levels are lower, getting from India to Australia is not nearly as difficult as it is now uh, if you were going by sea. And uh, 
the idea that uh, people lived and travelled over what is now the, uh, the bottom of the sea is regularly confirmed when people uh, trawl up various artefacts. This doesn't only happen in Australia, it certainly happens around Europe in the North Sea and places like that. Uh, but this was a recent study that we, uh, we wrote up in our uh, fact file that you can look up. Hundreds of stone tools and grinding sites at two sites on the seabed near the Dampier Archipelago. So that's off, um, off Western Australia. They found uh, lots and lots of these uh, stone tools and artefacts. And uh, we've got the, the reference to that original study if you'd, if you'd like to go and look at it. But there's certainly evidence that people lived, traveled and, um, and uh, communicated on these areas which are now under the sea, but uh, were uh, exposed areas of land in times of uh, those lower sea levels. And that brings up another question, of course, which we won't deal with now. Uh, what do they think caused the sea levels to change uh, back there four and a half thousand years ago? It certainly wasn't from people driving cars or generating electricity, but that's another issue. Uh, anyway, moving on, uh, another evidence that's put forward uh, about, well, the Aborigines have been here for 40 to 60,000 years is their art and uh, there are various examples of people trying to date the art now this is some typical um, rock art of uh, aboriginals um, this is a this is the sort of thing that most of the tourists uh, would know about of uh, aboriginal rock art there's lots of examples of this all over the country it does have different styles just like european art and any other sort of art does have different styles um, now, there are some pieces of rock art that are clearly not 40,000 years ago. What do you think this looks like? Um, how about something like that? Yes, now there's been uh, exploration into Australia for uh, the last few hundred years, but certainly not uh, 4,000 years and certainly not 40,000 years into Australia. And uh, so those, those particular pictures can't be that old. And one of our uh, colleagues who's an artist, uh, Steve Cardinal, who does a lot of our artwork, uh, being an artist, he knows a bit about paint. And he said, well, really, if the Aborigines could produce paint that lasted 40,000 years, the paint companies would be very keen to keep their, get their hands on it and would probably pay a lot of money for it, um, And uh, which I thought was a, a very good comment. Um, something that... Uh, I've actually observed myself. This was from uh, Catherine Gorge, um, where there's a lot of rock art up in the Northern Territory. And uh, I went for a trip up there and was taken on a tour by a local Aboriginal uh, man and shown this rock art. And it was very interesting. And along the edges of um, some of these rock formations, there were these white lines of, uh, of silicone. And, uh, and he explained that those had been put there in order to divert the rain away from the rock art. Now, if they have to do that uh, in order to preserve the rock art, and that's only been done in the last couple of decades, uh, what was going on for so-called 40,000 years before pe modern people came along? 
um, and put silicone strips there to divert the rain. And yet you can still see the uh, examples of the art there. Um, perhaps uh, John has some interesting insights into that later from uh, what he's learnt from the Aboriginal people themselves. Uh, but there's more to this question than just how long have uh, people been here and been in Australia. If we look at the content of the artwork itself, that tells you about what's important and significant in their culture. And one of the most common themes in rock art and Aboriginal art, you know, even the modern rap Aboriginal art, but rock art all over the country, is the dominance of the serpent uh, and also in their stories. Um, very much the uh, serpent is very dominant in their artworks, in their stories. And that says a lot about their culture and about our culture and about culture all over the world as well, because the, the serpent is a very common theme in lots of different cultures. And I think that tells us a lot about the uh, biblical history of people. So if we can just uh, come back to us now. Uh, no. no, we've gone too far. We're going the wrong way. Yeah, uh, you know, right. if you just come back to uh, back to us now, yes, okay, all right, yeah, all right, there we yeah. go. Uh, it's uh, thanks for that, uh, Diana. It's a great introduction, yeah. um, to the program for tonight. I think it's time that we have uh, a little brief Joe, break. Joe, before you do questions, I've got a few comments oh, to make, and which will help with the question period time oh. now. Uh, Diane was just talking about paint art and using Steve Cardinal, who's our artist. And by the way, if you're a Christian, pray for him at the moment. He's up to his eyeballs in murals for our new museum. Uh, dinosaur growth rates and, and T-Rex patterns of growth, etc. And he needs it done by Thursday so we can get it up. But it's artwork. Okay, now here's a real story that uh, actually relates to art or several of them. Number one, I have personally visited many of these caves like Diane has, but mine are not the tourist ones. Mine are the ones that have essentially historic value, but they the tribe has abandoned um, the cave because there's either nobody from that tribe left in the area anymore uh, or they just lost interest. Okay, so two aspects. Many years ago, I came across an old man who introduced me to local Aboriginal culture just over the border in New South Wales and told me about the three brothers. The three brothers story is all about how the Aborigines on Australia landed on the coast just down near Evans Head. Then they actually migrated west, north and south. And there are three mountains that remind us of these three brothers, middle mountain or middle brother, south brother, north brother. But on the entrance to one of them, there's a cave and there's faint, faint, faint paintings of the three brothers. So I went up there. No, we didn't desecrate them. The reality is they were so faint because the old man says, well, the young people don't come and touch them up every year because if you have clay on walls or whatever and it's going to be subject to the weather, to the wind and all of that, it does not last 40,000 years. And he basically said, what used to happen is that every year at the, the uh, growing up ceremony, the sort of circumcision event, enter into the tribe, they would come, they would come to this cave, and then they would actually have to take part in updating 
the, the colors, etc. So number one, any fresh looking paint on the Aborigines is not 40,000 years old. Now, that's the historic episode. Secondly, you or when you look at that story, the Aborigines landed just further south than where I was with the cave. And but the funny thing is, even Captain Cook noticed they had no sea going vessels. So hence Diane's questions. How did they get here? The water level was lower. They actually lived on the way. They took a little while. And the, well, Captain Cook worried, where did they come from? How did they get here? Because he had to have a big seagoing vessel. So when you look at the artwork in the Northern Territory, it, it pictures the Europeans arriving in their big multi-mastered uh, things. And the painting is very realistic. The traditional painting, uh, dot style or uh, X-ray style or anything like that, to you and me is not as realistic as their later paintings, which we can date from the 1600s onwards. But you see, when you get to Northern New South Wales and you actually see the paintings that have been abandoned by the local tribes who have stories of a big flood, who have stories of arriving here after a big flood, who have stories of reaching the country after war and fighting in the middle of the world and then going up into the hills and discovering the spirits and then using that story to say we used to have metal tools but we lost the ability to make metal after they took up the spirits of the country okay now a modern up-to-date look at this from an aboriginal on the radio the other day when i was asked to deal with this issue um, because we have a big referendum coming in australia on not just land rights or land wrongs but on whether we need enhanced participation by Aboriginals who, in essence, most Europeans say you're giving them extra privileges that Europeans won't have. And we've got to de decide whether we want to vote yes or no. More about that later. But this man came on the program. He was from a place called Ararat in Victoria. Yes, you've guessed it. Obviously, Christian biblical influence. Obviously, a story of Noah's flood. Obviously, um, relating to where did all the people come from? But he was sharing how he was doing a job, a job not far away. And there was a cave nearby and the anthropologists had found this cave and they dated the paintings at 40,000 years. So obviously the Aborigines had arrived sometime before that. And those are the figures that are commonly tossed around 40, 50, even 60 and 70, mm -hmm. Diane. But he said there was an Aboriginal on the job with them and the Aboriginal came up shaking his head and uh, said, you know, boss, you white fellas are stupid. <laughs> and they, got, they obviously got on well enough to insult each other. And he said, why? He said, them blokes down there that have dated that painting at 40,000 years, he said, me and my brother did those when we were kids. Right now, that's a very, I mean, that's what they used to do, go and upgrade the paintings. But these were brand new. When that Aboriginal was a kid, they went into the cave and they put those paintings up. So in reality, mm. if you've got questions about dating, about artwork, about how did the Aborigines get here, or what would make the sea level go lower? Is there any biblical reason? Now is the time to actually get. Oh, and I need to let you in on a secret. Uh, we'll give you a bit of reasoning later. And Joe will come on just before we have the next section with a slab from the Middle East, which actually relates to Australia as well, and how you decide who owns land. So when you have a look at this whole issue, 
do we have a biblical framework for the water going lower? Would it match the dingo DNA? Would it match the Aboriginal DNA? I guess I better tell you one last thing. Um, I met an older Aboriginal gentleman. He'd been employed by the government. He was sort of like a, um, a, a counsel to the, the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and they travelled to India one year. And he went there just to, you know, be an, an associate with the minister. And he said, the local people kept assuming I was Indian. And he said, I just looked like the Indians. So they came up and they would talk to me in their Indian language, not in European English. And he, of course, only knew Aboriginal or English. So he didn't know what they were talking about. But the natives themselves assumed his looks were Indian which, of course, matches the actual DNA evidence from, well, it was actually a group of Indians who did that first study, yeah. wasn't it, on the DNA? And you might want to ask Diane if you actually um, um, know uh, what, what DNA they were actually looking for, because that's interesting in itself. Okay, Joe, um, let's take it away with the first question time. Yeah, um, we appear to have two Indiana Joes that have joined us. I'm assuming that that's Sam, uh, who has had to uh, drop out for just a second. But we do have lots and lots of thank yous, and we have some questions as well. I'm going to leave the thank you to Sam, because we all like watching him uh, reenact them. But um, we'll dive into some questions now. And this is a question from Doki Doki Bible Club. Are there any Aboriginal skulls still in museums? And he's added a little extra comment, which is, used as proof for evolution um because of course this was one of the uh the back when um the theory of evolution first began to be popularized by charles darwin uh, australian aborigines were believed to be less evolved and their skulls were used as part of this proof um many diagrams but any comments on that are there any aboriginal skulls still in museums used as proof for evolution great there, there was there was one uh, returned, I think, from the British Museum to Australia just very recently. It was on the uh, on the ABC radio a few few weeks ago, um, as, as recent as that I heard. It might have even been a Tasmanian Aboriginal, I think. Uh, so clearly they've been um, in museums up till very recently, and I suspect there's probably still a few around the world. Can't speak definitively on that, but. Um, they certainly were gathered as proof for evolution at the time. And I did hear um, an interview with an anthropologist in Victoria on one occasion um, speaking of how after Darwin's publication in 1859 that the treatment of Aboriginals in southern Australia at least uh, deteriorated and that because they were viewed as sort of... Uh, the lowest form of evolved life uh, they were being mistreated so um you know obviously evolutionists have a have a different uh argument for that that treatment now but um yeah certainly it led to to poor treatment and collection of skulls and things like that diane uh well many years ago i did visit the the sort of back archives of uh of organization called the Institute of Anatomy in Canberra, which is like a, a museum. Um, this was the stuff that they had stored in the in the back rooms and the basements and things like that. They did have quite a number of Aboriginal bones there and Aboriginal skulls. I think since then, this was sort of over 20 years ago, those have been returned to the, um, 
the tribal elders where they've been able to track them down from historical records. Uh, but in terms of public display, no, not anymore. But uh, there was in, in the past. It's certainly true. When I grew up, um, there was Aboriginal stuff on public display, which mm. the Aborigines would never have displayed mm. um, because some of you who live in Australia may have noticed warnings on some of our uh, almost Indigenous television uh, where we get um, channels as a, a, a native um, Indigenous channel. And if it's a history program, they will warn you that viewers may be offended by the appearance of currently deceased people, right? Now, once you have a look at Aboriginal history, you get amazed by the fact that in their schedule, there's either now or there's the dream time. Now, if you're European, you've got a big influence of Greek history, Hebrew history, uh, etc. cetera, um, thousands of years of Europeans adding things up and having a very distinct chronology from Alpha to Beta to Gamma or Adam right up to the present day. And you have cemeteries full of gravestones with names on. You have cathedrals stacked with Roman sarcophagus with dates and names and things like that. And we make a great thing about our ancestors naming them, knowing them. You have church Bibles with vast lists of people. Now, that is absolutely foreign to Aboriginal culture. There's either now or there's the dream time. It becomes an issue if you get invited to an Aboriginal wedding. You turn up on Saturday at 10 a.m. when you've been invited to a 10 a.m. wedding. It may not take place for a week, right? <laughs> and, and, and if you go home and don't stay, you think, you know, this is crazy. No, they have no emphasis on time like you and I in the Western world do because we've been so influenced by Christianity, which says, teach us, O Lord, to number our days, which are so few. It is God who has given time. God's the controller of time and time actually matters. But in Aboriginal culture, once you become deceased, you you are eliminated, right? So when you track down a skull, you don't track down to a person or even to a family. You might be able to do that with DNA, etc. but it's tracked down basically to a tribal district. That's the best you can actually do. So like Craig, like Diane, I'm sure there is stuff stacked around the world that has not been returned and probably never will be but in reality the actual darwinian attitude you have to come to grips with darwin is on track record as regarding aborigines as the bottom of the pile primitive people and we really way down there intellectually stone age etc he really is on record as saying that and it reflected his attitude but don't, don't blame him for all of that because much European culture of people depended on where they were in their sort of social status of advancement, whether they were, you know, fancy tools or low tools. So we Europeans were up there. Aborigines with stone tools were down there. But they maybe had a different reason. That is that as we left Babel, things went downhill. So uh, we'll, we'll come across all of those later on. Uh, in this question, probably, Joe. Well, it's interesting, just very briefly, um, part of the research that I'm doing in looking for the history of evolution, um, we came across a, a book that is out of print, right? It was it was published back in the 1800s, uh, but we managed to get a copy of a reprint of it. And the title is The Negro, Made in the Image of God or the Image of an Ape, right? And the whole program of this is our 
dark-skinned people are indigenous people, are aboriginal people made in the image of God, or are as in descended from Adam, or are they made in the image of an ape? Are they evolved apes? And the whole premise of the book is that, based on the works of Mr. Darwin, we now know that the African people and the Aboriginal people cannot be descended from Adam because of their unique characteristics. Of course, they're talking about skin color and some of the body morphologies and stuff, but it then lists uh, the kind of the, the hierarchy, right, from white man at the top. So it's a racist opinion, right? White man at the top to yellow man or Asian ethnic origin down a bit below to the black African down a bit below and Australian Aborigines are right down the bottom. So this is real social history, right, that you can go and we've got the books that you can see. This is what people believed. That's why it's so important to start from a biblical perspective, which is the good to bad to worse. It's so important to understand that all are created originally in the image of God, all are descended from Adam. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. Um, but you've got to start with that biblical perspective because if you take, and these people were arguing or were trying to argue from a Christian perspective, right? But they had been influenced by the work of Charles Darwin and the many, many, many predecessors to him that had worked um, with the idea of evolution. And you end up with this very racist idea that white man is at the top, black man is at the bottom, and the Australian Aboriginals even duck in under that. Um, and that's why you've now got this situation uh, going on in Australia, which is really reverse racism uh, in many ways. So we need to get back to that biblical picture for sure. Okay, next question, Joe. Next question. Are there any Aboriginal dinosaur petroglyphs is a question from Douglas. Are there any Aboriginal dinosaur petroglyphs? Okay, perhaps I'd better throw something in here. Um, you will find Aboriginal representations of animals, particularly the ones in the Northern Territory, are usually very realistic. So you can distinguish, uh, you can distinguish the big birds, the emu. You can distinguish, you know, animals like the dingo, and you can distinguish humans. Even though when you find what's called the Bradshaw art, it definitely seems to be a totally different style of art but you can still tell if it's a woman or a man uh, or things like that. So far, we have um, some animals which are not recognisable on our current extant list in Australia. But I have personally not seen anything that looks like a, a dinosaur. How about you, Craig? No, I was going to say I'm not particularly familiar with, with any. Some people would argue that some of the pictures... Uh, look like plesiosaurs, uh, but they, they could be argued to be crocodiles. Diane? Uh, I haven't seen any uh, examples. There are some examples which could have been the megafauna, which were giant mammals and giant birds, uh, but not dinosaurs. And I've never seen anyone claim, actually, mm -hmm. that uh, Aborigines depicted dinosaurs. Uh, you have in the northwest of Western Australia... Mm -hmm. Um, you have a whole series of dinosaur footprints. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that the Aborigines interpreted those footprints as giant emus, right? Um, so when, when you look at their knowledge of some of the fossils that we would currently attribute to dinosaurs, uh, in the absence of dinosaurs being here when they mm -hmm. first arrived four or so thousand years ago at the max, uh, it would imply there were probably no dinosaurs left. The dinosaurs had disappeared. Uh, so 
So that's that's the limit of our knowledge there. Perhaps one more, Joe. Yeah, we've got one more question uh, all here and ready to go. And that is a question from Doki Doki, which says, what is the Aboriginal language like? <laughs> well, that's a really good question. And uh, Dr. Alan Hall, who was our chief advisor and linguist, uh, he was an Aboriginal linguist. He was a lecturer in link language at universities. He received his Order of Australia, um, even as a Christian, right, for, for reconstructing place names, uh, given all the clues that he had from the local environment and many of the place names on the maps are Aboriginal uh, language, but they are basically derived from a white man studying the language using analytical tools to rebuild the town names and things like that. And Dr. Alan Hall, uh, I had many long conversations with him before he went to the Lord. And he's one of the guys who we feature in our Jesus in Genesis book, which we'd encourage you to pick up. I think it's available in many of our offices. But he's one of the guys who said, listen, there was probably up to 600 dialects uh, of Aboriginal language and maybe three major subgroups of those. And so implicit in that is the Aborigines arriving from India in three separate groups one through Northwest Western Australia, where you find those tools on the seafloor. Interesting, nobody's asked us about that yet. I'll keep hammering that because it's interesting as to how the water would be lower in a biblical perspective. And when you have a think about you get three different groups coming from India, it's the ones on the East Coast who say they left the middle of the world after much war and fighting. The ones on the North say they walked here. So you've got three separate groups and one of them, one third of them, knew all about uh, circumcision, right? So it would appear implicit that they left the Middle East after the days of Abraham. So it's intriguing to look. So there's no one single Aboriginal language. Uh, even amongst themselves, they would have to use sign language to actually communicate if they ever had a, a tribal gathering from uh, the diverse parts of um, well, they, they have no concept of state, um, no concept of, uh, of um, districts in the sense that you and I know as a European, uh, basically because to them, the land owned them, right? So they were part of the land, the land gave birth to them, etc. Even though they had a creation story by and large, their concept of land ownership was not the biblical one. And we'll talk about that as we um, come up. So that's probably as, as much yep. as we can say at the well, moment. Can, so. can I just add one thing to that? Uh, um, I, I met some West Papuan missionaries at the museum uh, last week, and they were suggesting that some of the, the Negroid features that are in the Aboriginals and the Melanesian uh, Islanders may have come from uh, slaves that were being used to um, operate the ships of uh, Solomon and, and the seafarers that 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 travelled for the Bible says for more than three years at a time, and went to places like it mentions Ophir, which no one really knows where that is, but is suggested to be India because of some of the the items that they brought back. But um, and, and there might have been shipwrecks, and some of them were left off uh, on, on islands or whatever, and, and populated from there. So uh, they would know about circumcision, for example, but. Yeah, um, but, uh, yeah, that's that's obviously a speculative theory, but it was quite an interesting one to hear. It is because uh, Dr. Alan Hall directed my attention to a photograph from the 1930s 
of the little people here in Australia, right? And most of the Aboriginal groups, because I've got the advantage of having worked over much of Australia, interacted with Aborigines since I was a young person, and they all had stories about little people, but mostly it was somewhere else. Mostly it was over the valley. Mostly it was somewhere else. But here was a picture taken in the early 1900s of a European, uh, obviously normal size, but with a group of Aboriginal pygmies. That's, that's all you could say to describe them. So I think there's significant evidence to back up that concept that Papua New Guineans had, um, whether they just migrated across in the end from Papua New Guinea, because you can still almost row your boat over there. It's such a short distance even today, shorter than the distance between England and France, I believe. So you'll find that um, that's a very, very feasible concept. Even if we can't prove it today, the pictures exist of those little people here in Australia. As one of the waves, because there was, as you said, at least three waves. And yeah. John Osgood talks about this, that one of the waves may have come later and the others earlier by land. Yeah, agreed. Very okay, good. Would well, you like actually you just say, um, Sorry. Say, say again, sorry. I said, would you like to actually get your bit of evidence that we need to bring in at the moment on um, the, the distribution of races? I can indeed. I've got it all set up here and I'll bring it up. Um, but before before we do that, just a few quick thank yous. Uh, Sam, if you'd like to cover that while I uh, pull up the details over here. Absolutely. Uh, we've got Doki Doki coming in with 199 US buckaroos, a thumbs up. Thank you so much, Doki. And then coming up again, we've got Doki Doki coming in with another 199 US buckaroos. Coming soon, surrounded by yellow stars. Yes, that is in reference to our brand new TV channel that we are launching on Monday at 9 p.m. UK time here on our YouTube channel. You really don't want to miss that. It's a 24-7 broadcast of uh, some of the best of creation research, uh, broadcasting 24-7, uh, so you can get your creation research fix whenever you need it. Uh, we also have uh, Lynn coming in with 35 New Zealand buckaroos. Thank you so much, Lynn. Uh, God bless you. Uh, we've got uh, Douglas Boffy coming in with five British buckaroos, a Sheba dog writing with a brush, writing number one on a piece of paper. Uh, I am not a dog, so I can't interpret that one, unfortunately. Um, but there we go. We've got Iron Matt. Thanks for well. number one. Yes, exactly. Uh, got Iron Matt coming in with four US buckaroos pair character, exaggeratingly stretching his arm forward to offer a cup of coffee. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, I believe this may have been put in twice, but I'll. Uh, yeah, it's been put in twice. Uh, we've also got another one from Doki Doki of 99 US Centaurus, a smiling face with sunglasses. Unfortunately, don't have sunglasses, so you'll have to deal with the, the old goggles like that. There you go. Um, and uh, we've also got another one coming in from Doki Doki here, 99 US Centaurus, 100 underlined twice. There we go. And I'll just double check to make sure there are no more. That's all good. And that's all the thank yous done. Thank you for that, Sam. Um, what I'm going to do now, I have a, a rather interesting artifact, so I'm going to go and operate the close-up camera um, before we talk about that. John, did you want to say anything to introduce us as well? We're having trouble hearing you, Joe. You're a bit echoey. Probably because, yeah, I've moved the camera, I've moved the microphone around because I'm about to go over there. So, Sam, I'm going to let you put up the extra um, footage and I'll go over here and hopefully you'll still be able to, to hear me uh, as I bring it round. 
I recognise that. There we are. Yes, indeed. Well, we've done a few uh, 3D scans of it and all sorts of stuff. Um, this is a live feed, by the way, so you can see my hand here. Hello. Uh, and you can see we've got a lovely impression that's uh, in this brick. Okay, now give it some perspective. This is a Babylonian brick. Uh, the history of it is quite interesting. It was collected in the 1930s by the Reverend Leonard Pearson back when it was perfectly uh, legal to go and pick up random things from Iraq and bring them back to England, seeing as it was still part of the British Empire. Um, but we've got this rather brilliant and detailed inscription. Now, the great thing about this is that it was actually donated to the British Museum uh, on loan for a number of years until about 1970, when Leonard Pearson took it back into his private collection. Uh, and there it basically stayed in his estate until we were able to then acquire it. So it's uh, got a long and varied history, but while it was actually in the British Museum, it did end up getting translated. So you can see the inscription here, um, and actually here is the British Museum's translation of it. So if we get up nice and close, so you can actually see what we're dealing with here. Um, there's the British Museum details, right? You can see the room of writing. Now, as we go down, you can see we've got two lines of text. We have this line of text at the top here, the squiggly wiggly bits, and then we have some English letters. Now, the top line is the actual inscription copied out. The line below that, the English letters, is the transliteration. The transliteration is literally the um, Arcadian language, because this is cuneiform, right, which is the written version of the Arcadian language, put into English letters. And it doesn't make much sense. I mean, you could try to pronounce some of this. Nabu, kudu, uh, well, it doesn't really make much sense at all. But that's okay, because as we go down the page, you can see that we're now actually getting to the translation. Now, not only is it in British or English writing, English letters, but it actually makes some sense. It is actually translated. What does it say? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who provides for Eschila and Isida, the eldest son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, am I. Now, this am I, and you can see it's actually referenced here in the British Museum, this last phrase, am I, is omitted from many of the bricks. This little am I bit here is actually very, very important. Why is that the case? Well, what you'll find is that for many, many years, um, various scholars, biblical scholars, really claimed that there's no way that the book of Daniel could have been written at the time that it was supposed to have been written simply because, and let me just come back here to me now so you can see me, simply because it refers to King Nebuchadnezzar in the first person. Let me give you an example of this because we'll pull up uh, a Bible verse here um, and just run through some of the details uh, that we're talking about. Here it is just here. Let me just share my screen very quickly. So in Daniel chapter 4, you'll find it talks about the prayer of Nebuchadnezzar. Bit of historical context. Nebuchadnezzar comes out and boasts that he is the greatest king of all time. And to be fair, he probably was. But he goes one step further than that. He claims that he is a supreme god. And the one true god, the god of uh, Israel, the Holy One of Israel, as it's referred to in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, um, 
he says, no, you're not the greatest god of all time, or the greatest king. You're going to go a bit mad, and your hair's going to grow out, and your fingernails are going to grow out, and you're going to go out and eat grass. And, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar went a bit wild, a bit mad, the madness of Nebuchadnezzar, as it became known as. Uh, by the end of that experience, Nebuchadnezzar said, you know what, I might not be the greatest god of all time. Um, there's a much greater one even than I. And he recorded the prayer of Nebuchadnezzar, which is recorded in Daniel chapter 4. Look at what it says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, am praising and exalting and glorifying the king of heavens, because all his works are truth and his ways are just, and because he is able to humiliate those who are walking in pride. Interesting words from a pagan king. But then if you had gone through the same experience that Nebuchadnezzar had been through, I suspect you might say something similar. Um, however, notice how it's written in the first person. Uh, we're getting into some of the interesting things with English language here, right? Now I, this is the king speaking, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, I am. Now, for many years, Biblical scholars said there's no way that this is, could have been written at the time that it was supposed to have been written because no scribe would dare write down the words, I, Nebuchadnezzar. It would be blasphemy. It would be a bit like me going, I, God, say this. No, the one true God says it. Um, and so really what they said is that you can't trust the Bible. Then a little while later, they started discovering things like this Babylonian brick, which does refer to the king in the first person. Interesting piece of evidence. It turns out that the scholars were half right. Scribes wouldn't write down, I am Nebuchadnezzar. So whenever you see reference to the first person, to King Nebuchadnezzar, or any of the Babylonian kings, you'll find that it's the king himself who wrote it. It's the king himself who actually stamped it. So number one, you can trust the Bible. This is an accurate record of what the king actually declared himself and stamped and wrote down, just like he stamped and wrote down our foundation brick. The I am is very significant, and even the British Museum recognized this because the king's signatures are rarely signed with such a double confirmation that it was actually the king himself who authorized this statement. Um, so it's now an excellent piece of evidence that the biblical book of Daniel, where King Nebuchadnezzar wrote the official tablet stating, I am King Nebuchadnezzar, and I say this, the king of heaven is greater than I. So interesting piece of biblical evidence. Interesting importance that the archaeological evidence really does confirm that the biblical record is consistent and the bible can be trusted now this is all amazing and we've spoken about this a number of times before but john i'm going to go back to you now because what on earth has this got to do with the australian aboriginals yes good question because the whole issue at stake here at the moment is glenn found why on earth are we being told the university is running on aboriginal permission on time, on land, etc. Uh, how do you decide who owns the land? Uh, what are the rules? Why did the British think when they came here there was nobody working the land, therefore there was no real land ownership? And Captain Cook stood on the beach, shoved a pole in the ground, and said, "I, you know, acknowledge that th this is our land now. We've claimed it in the name of." How did that work? Um, what was Aboriginal ownership? because we are being asked to run a, a big um, vote, isn't it, Diane? Uh, a, referendum. a referendum, which is the most serious <laughs> type change to our constitution on the basis of, do you accept the Aboriginals have these rights? 
do you accept the Europeans have these rights? Now, I've been enough in the Western parts of Queensland to note that when you make rules that favour one group as opposed to the other, the inevitable result is, is, is envy, jealousy, etc. In one town particularly where they voted to actually, this is the federal groups who voted to actually give the Aboriginals free bus transport and the Europeans had to pay for it, a simple little thing, man, did that cause chaos. Uh, because what right do you have to get free bus tickets, whereas we have to pay for them? So you have to be very careful when you're making rules about how you want to run your country. How do you decide who who does own the land? Now, I'll throw in a few things before I, I get back to Joseph's thing, because I want to start my section with a Bible reading before we have a look at some boomerangs and before we actually have some pictures from me and then we'll have our, our next question time. Number one, indigenous. Um, I, I've, I've reached a conclusion about indigenous by asking this question. I was born in Australia. Am I a European? Am I a foreigner? Um, am I indigenous? How do you decide who's indigenous? So let me be provocative. Point number one, if your dad did came from Europe or China or wherever, if you're born in Australia, you're technically indigenous. Otherwise, you have to say, how long did the Aborigines have to be here before they were indigenous? Um, and nobody wants to answer that question. Uh, were they here first? Therefore, that makes them indigenous. Well, I'm here first in my life. Uh, I'm the first member of my dad's family to be here, born here. I'm indigenous. How do you make rules like this? Or is it just for arbitrary politics? Uh, when it comes to um, the Aboriginals, uh, that they provably come from India. All of our evidence shows us that, so they are not actually locally born Australians. You get some of them now saying, oh, the biblical story is not relevant to us because we were created in Australia. I'm sorry, the genetics doesn't back that up at all. You do not come traditionally from Australia. You are migrants. You are boat people if you came by boat like we did. Right? Well, my dad actually... Uh, he arrived by boat because in his day the big planes didn't fly internationally so we are boat people and many of the newer groups that have come to australia escaping the middle east escaping you know nebuchadnezzar's old country and all of those places they're boat people as well but then again we were all boat people in noah's day okay what's this got to do with uh, joe reading a, a thing about nebuchadnezzar let me tell you you see how do you decide the rules on who owns the land. I'll tell you what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. Um, this is from Daniel chapter 4 also, where Daniel, who's got a fair reputation as a dream interpreter, right? He's now high up in the opinion of the king as someone you can go to to get your dreams interpreted. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel figures out what it is because God is with him. And then he says, this is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King. Now, Daniel's a pretty aggressive speaker, preacher, teacher, call it what you look. But in, in reality, listen to what he says next. They, the people around you, shall drive you from men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. That's what Joseph was talking about, the madness of Nebuchadnezzar. And they shall make you to eat grass as an oxen. Who's the they? In this case, probably angels, demons, you know, what are the people? You'll have no access to food and they shall make you wet with the dew of heaven. And seven times, seven years will pass over you till you know 
you you you've got to stop all this bragging and boasting king you are not the highest king you are not the lord god seven times till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men now you say so what well here's the punchline he gives it to whoever he wills now did you catch that last line land ownership is ultimately the property of the lord god who made the heavens and the earth and he gives it to whomsoever he wills okay so captain cook stands on the beach he raises a flag but the whole of british mentality in those days well do you remember the national anthem diane you should know the national anthem that we used to have before waltzing matilda came along and, and the other one um what, what what did you start with our old national anthem our old national anthem yeah. was actually the british one they yes i know god but what, what yes god, god save, save the, the king well it was god save the queen for most of my life it's only recently <laughs> become god save That's the true. king so <laughs> there was an acknowledgement in british law and mm. british royalty that there was always one higher and he was the one who distributed mm. the land now regardless of whether the kings abused that privilege or the nobles benefited from it to the to the cost of the, the laity whatever there was still an acknowledgement i'm reading a biography at the moment of lord nelson do you remember horatio nelson yeah. and uh, a really famous sailor and and an admiral in the history of the british navy that i they included there one of his first reports as he's moving up the chain marvelous fighter bit of a, a non-disciplinarian he chose to ignore orders when he thought they were stupid or they didn't suit him but he got so many victories basically the admiralty had to cave in and listen to the guy but the funny thing is despite his bad reputation with lady emma and a few other things going around the edges he begins his re first report which really is referenced and, and it's there in intact he basically acknowledges god who blesses man and gives him victory right now this is almost you and I would say a, a military captain who's doing his own thing, but yet he's saying, look, there is one higher than me and he has chosen me to bring victory. Doesn't say he's a Christian, doesn't say he's, he's a believer. He's almost like where King Nebuchadnezzar got to, I acknowledge that there is one higher than me and God is who it is. So Daniel writes to King Nebuchadnezzar and says, Daniel, uh, or Nebuchadnezzar, you will be humbled by the Lord God who, who owns the land and gives it to whoever he pleases. That's why we had that school group last week and we said, here's what we're doing. We'll give you a welcome to country in the name of the traditional owners, not the local tribe, not the previous Europeans, but the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, can I encourage all of you, particularly you Australians, uh, you Aboriginals who may be watching, listening, etc., to start your thoughts about country with, hey, God is the owner. The creator is the owner. The creator Christ is the one who owns it. So don't be surprised, and we won't get up there today, that the book of Revelation, the last book, also includes the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and God. Uh, there is that line all the way through. So when we look at a biblical perspective of ownership. On top of that, you can look at the history of each group. And one thing you never find is God acknowledging you were there first, so it must belong to you. Did you catch what I just said? 
because that's swapped over to be the basis. Hey, we were here 10,000 years, 40,000 years, 60,000 years, 70,000 years. It must be ours. Now, God never acknowledges any such claim, whether it be by the British, the Europeans, by the Russians. It has no claim in God's perspective at all. He is the one who raises up King Nebuchadnezzar and then he takes him down a peg or two. And then he alone, you say, what, what right did he, he have to get the throne back? The answer is none. He never had any right in the first place. God chooses to put him there. And I suspect one reason is so Daniel would be raised up and you and I could see what godliness was all about. So you want to sort out this issue? Perhaps I'd, I'd better help you a bit. Uh, my experience with Aborigines and talking to them over the recent times, I'm going to vote no. And now that's not a creation research policy. That's just where I've got to. And I have to tell you that so you know what's coming. Okay, Joe, one last picture here. This is going to feature in the next little while. It's a boomerang, but it's different than, oh, these are big, some of these. It's different than this one. This is a killing boomerang. This is a returning boomerang. This is a decorated boomerang. This is a raw wooden one. I guess if you're going to smash things on the head or club them or whatever, it's not going to last with decorations for too long. But the group that we got this off, the interesting thing is the name they give to the killing boomerang. So, Diane, bring me up so I can then... Um, you want to bring my slides up? You're good at this stuff and I'm not. Your slides are ready to go. Ready to go. Good. We're up there. And then back the wrong way. Whoops, there we are. You want a biblical picture? There's where you need to start. God said, let us make man in our image. Point number one, the us is plural. Uh, man is singular. God's going to make man as in mankind in our image. So we do not belong to ourselves. We did not make ourselves. We are not self-creations. We are not self-made man. We are made by God. We are his property. Acknowledge his rights over us. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 10, it says these were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations. And from these, the nations, including the Aboriginal groups, the 600 language groups, the 600 tribal, call them nations if you like, they were divided on earth and within Australia after the flood. So don't be surprised. Many Aboriginal traditions have a story about a flood and the ones on the East Coast, the ones that I've personally investigated, interviewed, and you can see them on our Origin of Races series where we have the elders telling us they came here after much war and fighting, after the big flood. You want a perspective? 40,000 years? Sorry, it's not a biblical perspective. Any of the theistic evolutionists that sort of fall into the category of saying, well, the Aborigines have been here 60,000 years, that's what we should do. Uh, Christianity Today had an article last week by an Aboriginal on the, the Europeans have to acknowledge Aborigines have been here so long, and he was trying to give a Christian perspective. I'm sorry, he was lying to them. The Aborigines have not been here 60,000 years. In fact, it's hard to get Adam much past 6,000 years ago. Noah, 4,500 years ago. Hey, surprise, Diane. That's sort of the figure that they had for the dingoes and, and the people, isn't yeah. it? Then yeah, Babel, 4,300 years ago. Abraham, 3,900. Oh, you wonder where we get these figures from. You just add up the chronologies. 
And now we expect Dr. John Osgood, he's really, really great at adding up all these chronologies. And I've done it several times his way. And, and, and that's what you actually sort of get. Moses, 3,500 years in Egypt and Jesus, 2,000 years ago. OK, so obviously the Aborigines weren't here before Adam. They weren't here before Noah. They weren't here till after Babel. So that Christian who claims they've got to be acknowledged as 60,000 years is just wrong. Why? Because he cuts them off from Adam and cuts them off from Jesus. You heard what I said correctly. God said, let us make man in our image. Every one of us, black, white, indigo, pink, whatever we are, are descended from that one man. Look what Paul says in Acts. God has made all nations from one man to live on the earth, Aborigines, Chinese, etc., to live on the earth at the time and in the places. Can you read those next two words? He appointed. Not the Aborigines, not the explorers. I'll, I'll give you a, a, an interesting perspective on exploration. Have you ever thought that the people who've explored the planet are mostly the losers? I mean, they left England because they were basically the unpopular Puritans. They left because the others controlled the planet. The Aborigines, we left after much war and fighting, and they arrived here without, without bows and arrows, without uh, steel-tipped spears. They had no metal working. They had no written language. He appointed, so they would seek the Lord. So you and I who are watching tonight, you live exactly where you are, not just because your dad migrated from Scotland, but he came here so that I would personally seek the Lord. There's the biblical perspective. Created perfection. Yes, I know we're sometimes unpopular for reminding Christians that is how history has gone. I will be very, very blessed if I get to be over 100. Most of us, men particularly, are really pushing it to get past 80. And in fact, women get a few years longer, don't they, Diane, on average? But even that's changing as more and more women join the workforce. But Adam, he lived for 930 years. Noah lived for 969. No, Noah's, what's Noah? 950. Noah's nine, nine that's right. 50. But ever since then, we've gone down, down, down. And the Aborigines in Australia uh, traditionally well, very few of them, three to four hundred thousand, it's estimated minimum, six hundred thousand maximum. And now we're right down to us. And yes, I went to school with some Aborigines. I've investigated as much as I can. Now, when I took the ex Nilo magazine and began to turn it into the Creation magazine, I did an interview with an older missionary. What land rights? Uh, and this this is his uh, look, look, it says, Mengindi of the Wonkamara tribe, Burke, Western New South Wales. There's a quote. What land rights do we have? God owns the land. My land rights are in heaven. Oops, sorry. Christian Aboriginal. Um, do you realise Aboriginal applies to anybody who sort of moved to a land and uh, were there before others? You are originals. One of my friends, a uh, full-blood Aboriginal, called himself an abo uh, because he was Australian-born original. Well, I'm an Abba now. I'm an Australian-born original. i become a Christian too. But look at his attitude. Do we have any land rights or does God own all the land? My land rights are in heaven. Reminds me of uh, Abraham. I'm just a parson through that the Negroes turned into that spiritual. Now, I used to do all the artwork in the magazine. So there's my Aboriginal style of here is some of their ancestral stuff. 
about how they got to be here, what happened since then. And, and look, a Christian Aborigine from Western Australia said much of the land rights arguments are reversal of the dominion God gave to man. If we want land rights because of sacred sites, sacred kangaroos, etc., then the land and animals have dominion over us. God made it the opposite to this. What's the principle? Um, in the beginning, God made Adam and Eve. He made Adam in his image. He, he gave us dominion, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. We have the right to hunt the kangaroo, not just because God made it, but because in Genesis chapter 9, he authorizes us in Genesis chapter 8 and 9 and 10, authorizes us to add them to our diet. Previously, we are only authorized to eat vegetables. It is God who has authorized even our diet. God who authorizes ownership. So if you are troubled by this referendum, then number one, you should start on your knees and pray for the politicians. But then again, that's not new. I, I believe we're told to do that, Diane. Pray for the kings and queens yes, and all those so. in authority over us. Mm -hmm. You'd be amazed, including the collapse of communism, which really didn't come from political engendering. It came from Christians in Russia praying. Uh, yep. Tragically, when you go to the centre of Australia, oh, some of you mightn't be up on the fact that it's no longer called Ayers Rock. It's called Uluru. Actually, correction. I've been there. I've got the official government maps and the official government maps call it Ayers Rock Uluru. So don't be embarrassed by calling it, I'm going to visit Ayers Rock. But you will have noticed when you go over there, now they don't let you climb it anymore because of land rights, ownership, traditional values, etc. Why not? It's sacred to them. What's the background story? Uh, the big flood. That's where it starts. And the serpent actually swam with eight people on his back right up onto the top of that rock. And they were saved. And that's why they're the original landowners. But the rock is sacred because the one, their saviour, is a serpent. Now, keep that in mind. It's very important because when I was doing a program on radio the other day on this, someone says, we just need peace between the different racial groups. And I said, well, stop a moment. I said, Jesus said, I come to not bring peace, but to bring a sword, to divide fathers from son, mothers from daughters, families from families over the issue of the truth. If I'm trying to counsel a man who believes the serpent is his savior, and I want to tell him about Jesus, who is the enemy of the serpent, sorry, I will not bring peace at all. Now you are close up because when I did the artwork for this section, I did an Aboriginal rainbow. Uh, look at the, the sort of X-ray style. Look at the animals. And the Aborigine said, if you use the animals as our spirit ancestors, uh, that's why they've got no real history, by the way. When you die, you are edited out of history. So they can't say we were here 10,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago. That's European history. That's European fudge history based on carbon-14 and things like that. That is not real history, and they don't have a real history either. Or they've got stories. In our schools today, the uh, teachers were telling me with a school group I had the other day, the kids are not interested in history anymore. Or by history, they meant in 1066, here's who landed where, here's why King Harold got an arrow in the eye. They don't like that. They want Aboriginal history. Well, it's much easier. It's stories. Now, you may be able to extract some of the truth about the flood and the rainbow from these stories, but
but at the bottom there's a serpent okay that brings me back to this um what would you call those if you were in sydney what would you call them if you were in the center of australia unknown to most people only about a third of australia had returning boomerangs um the throwing boomerangs um well they're the ones with the sharp point like i showed you they're actually killing boomerangs but the word boomerang is actually from the Jurawell tribe just outside of Sydney. That's where Captain Cook and the others first encountered this and took those words back and made them famous. What would you call the killing stick? Well, important, we'll get to it. There's an ab Aboriginal or an Aboriginal North American. Uh, I took his picture uh, down in Arizona and you'll find that he was sort of guiding me to some dinosaur footprints. Uh, yep, way out in the centre there. But what's interesting, of course, is not only did Aborigines have boomerangs, or Aboriginal North American Indians did, because that's from the file, the archives in Arizona. You see the rabbit hunting? You see the throwing stick on the left-hand side? Despite the story that Aborigines invented this, and, uh, well, it's simply not true. They're the last people to keep using it. As soon as the American natives got six guns, they gave up boomerangs, much easier to hunt with. Good reference to boomerangs in Poland. Yeah, look, there's there's the original file, etc. You can look it up on our website. Um, there's a Polish boomerang. It functions the same way as our boomerangs, even though it's a ritual-type boomerang. By the time you get to Egypt, there's the snake-headed one. But then Egypt's rather famous for having snakes involved in things. And notice the curved stick. It's actually used historically as a throwing stick for catching birds it's also used as a killing stick and you say what's egyptian soldiers got to do with that now closer look what he's carrying now how do i know that's a valid picture because i paid a small fortune to the natural history museum the archaeological one in london to get access to king tutankhamun's stuff you know the famous boy king because look what they let me photograph in his coffin Yes, spears and all sorts of things, but boomerangs. Undeniably, the Aborigines are the last people to keep using boomerangs. There are many, many more effective ways to actually catch animals. Uh, boomerangs, killing, killing sticks, etc. Fascinating to think that boomerang has become the name of these all around the globe based on where Captain Cook uh, touched down in Australia and the tribes we first encountered. Um, by the way, boomerangs are not much good for hunting things in caves. They're not much good for hunting things uh, in, in a forest. So don't be surprised the Aborigines largely kept Australia burnt down because it helped them. The kangaroos were, I mean, Australia looked like Buckingham Palace Gardens. It really did. Check the old paintings. It did not get covered by forest. And we don't have ancient forest in, in most places because the Aborigines kept it really manicured. It helped their hunting. But there's an Egyptian boomerang. And it's made of ivory and it's carved. Fantastic. And when you go to India, and yes, I've been to India. Yes, that Aboriginal who went there with the minister, he, uh, he's been to India. The people thought he was a native Indian. The states of India, well, it's the Santal group that we are going to visit because over there they have throwing sticks. And they have, well, Diane's already mentioned a few things. 
Um, they have linguistics, which I'll refer to in a moment, that are similar to ours. Uh, and they have a word that you find popping up in the middle of Australia. See that boomerang again? Don't be surprised that they actually call it a Kali. At least the ones that I've interacted with. Uh, Kali? Well, Kali is the Indian goddess of death. If you're going to beat the brains out of something with a stick, um, then you actually need to call it a killing stick because that's what most people would call it. But when you get names and words that come from India, you say, well, how does we tie this together? Or who are you looking at? There's Alan Hall of European extraction via New Zealand to Australia, who became a university lecturer in linguistics and a Bible translator and was honoured with his Order of Australia. And there's Billy Sandy on the left-hand side, Moon and Charlie Elder. And we got to know him very, very well. And the interesting thing is, when you look at the traditions of the Aborigines in Australia, don't be surprised that you can trace many of them back through India for their content, back to Abraham, back to the Bible, etc. But Dr. Alan Hall made a few other comments. He mentioned that the North Queensland, where he did much of his work on inventing new Aboriginal names based on clues that were left in the environment or the, the stories of the people, he said, do you know what the Aborigines call their wild dog in North Queensland? I honestly didn't. I'd never left, lived up there in my early days. My uncle owned a big sugarcane farm in the southern part of the north, and he had Aboriginals in their humpies uh, down at the bottom of his farm. And so that was my first interactive experience with them. He said they called it a kucha. Top word. But then I was watching a program on Pakistan just last week and i rapidly wrote it down really glad to see it because it talked about the wild kucha the dogs they had so you beyond a shadow of a doubt pakistan which is a new creation in terms of history because of the division of india after the british left there still use the word the aborigines use for their dog or the other way around the aborigines still use the word that um, they, they bought from india so not only do we have the linguistic evidence, the mythological evidence, you'd call it, about the first man, get our origin of races, stream it or whatever, and you'll see our origin of races, real roots and the history of man. We have a whole racial series. We've spent a lot of time, money and effort interviewing these people. And on the East Coast, here's the story of the first man. The creator Biami took the red earth and he shaped it into the first man and um, he, he had some dirt left over, so he made two women, and that was asking for trouble. <laughs> I, I got it, got a smile. The Aboriginal stories do have an interesting, humorous twist to many of them. And then the story of the coming of death involves the creator's tree, and they were told they could use any other tree that they could not take the honey from the bees' hive in this creator's tree. And the woman, well, she nags her husband until he finally gives in, climbs up the tree and grabs the honey for her, and out flew the bat of death. And ever since then, we've died. Anything strike you as familiar with that? Death wasn't always on the planet. Well, go and watch Billy Sandy. Billy, Billy became a Christian. Billy was interesting to talk to because he didn't fit the politics of the, you know, the land rights issue, the, the stolen generation, etc. because he said that never happened in my district. We were asked 
did we want to benefit from Western education? My parents had no children stolen from them. He said, and, and, and they, they said, yes, we do. Now, in reality, there's always another side to that that the political activists are telling you. Every race has a traditional account of creation and a big flood in which the first man is always the same colour. I kid you not, whether it's the red earth, whether it's the red paint of the uh, um, facial features in, in Canada, the USA, etc., the red man sort of stories, whether it's the big first man in Nova Scotia, uh, it's actually a big model on, on the edge of the harbour painted red, gloose cap, and he's the first man, the same colour, and you can't explain that by evolution at all if we came from apes in Africa. Well, last little bit for the moment. Um, yeah, the Indian. Um, when, when you have a look at Indian features, Indian features have got a lot in common with Aboriginal features so that every Indian I've had come to Australia and interviewed said, man, that they look like um, the people from India. And they do. When you go to India, hey, here's one of my visits to India. No, that's not me. That's one of their native dogs. And where are we? We're in the rubbish tip at the edge of the school. Do you imagine sending your kids to school through that? Well, they did. I was in the school. The smell was incredible. There's the dog hunting through the actual stuff. And when you come to Australia, there's our dingoes. Now, let me just finish this section, Joe, before you bring us back by saying just a couple of things which people may not appreciate greatly. Um, our island, originally called Fraser Island, to honour a European lady who escaped the native attack and ended up floating around in a big tank, landed on Fraser Island. That's all changed now. The name has been changed. And they had a smoking ceremony uh, in which they would breathe, uh, waft the smoke over you to breathe into it. And they gave it the name of a spirit goddess. Now, the interesting thing is um, they've claimed all of those rights and they claim ownership. And the Aborigines I was talking to the other day say, this is all wrong. We don't own the land. The land owns us. But when you go to the smoking ceremonies and you talk to Christian Aborigines about it, they don't want anything to do with it. Why? Because the smoke represents the ancestral spirits, demons, call it what you like, and they're inviting them in. Now, can I warn you, if you're an Aboriginal, can I warn you for Europeans, this is not where you want to go. And in fact, Diane and I were talking, perhaps we need to think of another reason why the dingoes on Fraser Island have suddenly become so aggressive that they're actually attacking the European visitors now. Doesn't do much for the tourist industry. Joe, back to us. Okay, thank you very much. Let's bring that down. There we go. Oops, there we go. Um, <clears throat> thanks for that, John. We've got about... Um, 20 minutes left of the program. And by the way, for those who are watching, who've tuned in later, this is the last time that we're going to be doing a two-hour program. To give you a bit of perspective, as we were explaining earlier, two things. Number one, we're going to be shortening creation conversations to an hour and a half, but we are going to focus on content. 
So it's going to be a very content-focused program. So that means starting from next week, you need to be here when we start because we're diving straight into it. We're not going to be doing the um, ministry updates and the kind of stuff that we normally do for the first 30 to 40 minutes of the program. We're diving straight in to the content and then questions and answers. So we're going to continue with that. So get your questions in as we go. That's starting next week. And we will be doing the ministry reports as a separate program going forwards as well. Also to announce the fact that uh, we are also going to be doing a Creation Research TV, which is a 24-7 broadcast, which will be going out on our channels here on YouTube as well, which is a 24-hour live stream of all content creation research. So watch out for more information about that. That'll be starting on Monday, by the way. But going forwards, we're going to dive straight into content as soon as we begin on Creation Conversations. Well, we've got about 20 minutes or so, um, just slightly less than that, to do some questions and answer. So, Sam, I'm going to hand over to you for to begin with any more thank yous that are needed and then dive into some questions as well. All right. Uh, so as far as I can see, I don't think we have had any more thank yous to do, but we can certainly go into some questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got one here from Shogiwa who comes in with this question. Uh, have things other than tools been discovered in those underwater locations? Um, well, that they were tools and various artifacts um but there were hundreds and hundreds of them uh, in the same way like uh, you find mm-hmm. many tools yes. on the bottom of the mm. doggerel banks and places like that correct yes. joseph mm. yeah yeah you find them all over the uk in particular you go down to like uh, there's a very famous place down near Baldwin cliff um mm. on the isle of Wight, where you find huge amounts of these submerged neolithic um you could call them Aboriginal almost uh, settlements where you find all these tools and stuff. Um, there's a whole load of them as well around the Norfolk coast. Um, mm. You'll find in between the, um, in the North sea. So that's between the English coast, mm. Norfolk coast over to places like Holland and Denmark. There's a whole area where you have these submerged villages, really um, tools that come out of there constantly butchered bones as well you get a lot of the the fossil bones that come out of that area but also butchered bones and stuff like that um so it's really a big grassland plain which is where people were living and settling uh, before it became very rapidly flooded um not on a global scale but this is post-flood stuff but uh, certainly the result of um, ice age and so on and so forth okay just to add a in perspective there Nobody has asked yet, <laughs> how did the Aborigines get to Australia if they didn't have seagoing vessels? Well, apart from their own stories about the elders walking up out of the what's now the sea, there's plenty of evidence. And if you haven't seen our climate change programs, uh, climate change, there's three or four programs on it now, including your Ice Age one, Joe. Um, can I encourage you to go and stream them? Sam will put up any links there or go to our website insert ice age, insert um, flood, insert the sea level change, climate, etc. Because the one thing you'll find is that off the coast of Australia, there's evidence that the sea level used to be 140 metres. Uh, this keeps increasing as they find older and older beaches down the edge of the continental shelf. And the most amazing thing is how rapidly that sea level 
filled back up again. Okay, what's it caused by? Well, I'm pretty sure we're looking at the days of Job, uh, which which mentions the coming of the ice. Now, Job lived in the Middle East, and by his day, it, in order for him to understand God's questions, which in chapter 6, Job mentions ice, but in chapter 38 and to up to 41, there's questions about where were you when the ice came? Um, Job has no idea, or where did the ice come from? Uh, Job has no idea. But in reality, when you look at the coming of the ice, it appears to have been so sudden, particularly in the Middle East, God can ask Job a question about it. Now, no tribe around the planet that I've investigated has a story about where the ice came from. But what we do have is several stories around the planet about the sea level being lower, the evidence of the tools, etc., the evidence of geology. It was 140 metres lower. And if you redo your map, you drop the sea level 140 metres and you can nearly walk except for a few little spits you have to cross between Asia and Australia or between Australian mainland and Tasmania. And you find even still the trees going down those slopes. We've got them all out here in Moreton Bay. Go under see this forest on the bottom of the what's what's now the seafloor. But the reality is the water returned really suddenly. You didn't have time to pick up your stone tools and run. And the best source of information on that one that people regard as credible is David Attenborough because he came to Australia to interview the Aborigines and talk about them in North Queensland. And they have a story that says they used to live way out there, meaning past the Barrier Reef. Uh, way out there was a flatland, lay out there was plain, you know, the, the, the coastal underwater area like your area and, and dog, dog, Dogger Banks and that. And they lived out there. Then the sea came in and basically chased them in. So in that tradition, right, even if you thought that was 40,000 years ago, the, the Great Barrier Reef was not there. Now, all of our evidence tells us it was not there four to 5,000 years ago. It has grown that big in such a short period of time, and the water had come in really quickly, which means it came up around Cairns, it came up through Tasmania, it came up north of Australia, and if you hadn't made it to Australia by then, whether you were an animal or whether you were a person, you were not going to get there until the invention of Captain Cook's boats and some of those sailors who were intrepid enough to go sailing around the planet and be recorded by the Aborigines. It became an isolated spot, which is great for natural selection and variation of species, yes. isn't it, Diane, without any evolution at all. Mm. Craig, you got any evidence that uh, um, the, the groups of animals in that in Tasmania um, have also been on the mainland previously and then the water cut them off? Well, there's there's no, no way that, that some of the animals like the... Uh, kangaroos, Tasmanian devils, Tasmanian tigers, thylacines and so on could have made it uh, without walking. Another really interesting thing that these West Papuan missionaries uh, raised with was that they've got two uh, names for wild dogs and uh, one of them he call, they call Owo and, and they're a really wide mouth dog apparently according to their sort of traditions and, uh, and it's known that thylacines uh, are found in um, Papua as well. So the, the thylacines, there's even a fossil record that they've uh, been from Papua right down through Australia and into Tasmania. So they've clearly walked. And um, But another interesting fact too is that there's only, there was an estimated only 
three to five thousand Aboriginals in Tasmania when when Europeans arrived. So um, that suggests a couple of things uh, that they didn't handle the cold down here that well, that disease or, or war or, or something else uh, kept the numbers right down. Um, but if they've been here for 60,000 years, you would otherwise expect their population to be great, uh, much greater than uh, just three to 5,000. I'll throw one thing in there, which again won't be popular, but I'll phrase it with a reference to my own people uh, who came from Scotland and used to paint themselves blue. Um, hence, one of the movies on uh, Wallace is, is, is fairly accurate in terms of face colour, but not at the time he was around. We used to, every year on the last day of October, eat uh, and sacrifice a fair portion of our kids to appease the spirits. We did that up until the Christian missionaries came and basically uh, converted us through the gospel and then chopped down all those sacred trees. They didn't wait for a government council or anything. They went ahead and said, you can't do this. This is pagan. And so my nation was changed radically that way. Now, to update you with the Aborigines in Tasmania, as unpopular as it is, we've got the court records of sailors marrying the women because the women were very happy to get away from their culture. Yes, you heard me correctly, because Aboriginal culture, if a drought had come, they would sacrifice the babies and keep the dogs. The babies could not hunt. The babies were detrimental. The cold would have obviously created the situation like that. But in reality, uh, when you actually have a culture which does things like that, please don't expect God to bless it. That's why Daniel told the king, repent and maybe God will, will bless you. Uh, so you and I need to take into consideration that if we have a culture on the mainland or in Tasmania, who exalts the serpent above all, and you know very well that the serpent is actually the devil, then you need to tell them. You don't need to encourage them to imbibe the ancient spirits. You need to say, guys, this is going to be to your detriment, not to your mm -hmm. benefit. So please listen. And we need to be very careful because um, my son has confirmed he's doing a science degree of all things in, a, in an Australian university and he, he's required to do Indigenous studies as part of that. And he's just been learning that the smoking ceremonies and, and so on are designed to try and bring the spirits of the land back in and to get rid of the white man God. He's actually been told that. Yes. Good. Get a quote and get it, get it sent to us because I've observed that. That is my observation, but I've not heard a university put that in print. So we need that. Great. Yeah, I've, I've asked him to keep records. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, excellent. All right, um, let's have another question there, Sam, if there's another one of it uh, going. Yeah, we do. Uh, we have got our first question over from Rumble. Uh, so thank you very much for sending that in. I'll just put that up on the screen. Uh, that's the wrong one. There we go. Uh, it's a question from the RGS. Uh, do you guys, this is a two-part question, so I'll stick up the second part in a second. Uh, is do it up, you guys, is it up on is it up on the screen, Sam? It is, yes. Oh, I can't seem to see it. That's all right. That yeah. must be me. Um, do you guys believe in the Great Reset period? Like we have all done this before and humanity has reset itself once before and we are on the, the brink to do it again, i.e. Atlantis and Tart Tartaria. 
Even the ancient Egyptians, it has been proven that the uh, pyramids are older than we think they are, and the Sphinx is much older as well. So did humanity reset itself already once? Um, I'll throw in a few thoughts to start with. For those of you who say the pyramids are older than we think they are, you need to realize they're made of fossil limestone material, which has got giant uh, bugs in it compared to the present day. Uh, the present day uh, material, present day creatures that uh, are the stuff the limestone is made of are almost microscopic. In the pyramids, they're rice grain size. So it comes from a better world and they do not predate Noah's flood at all. They are derived from material that is flood deposited. So please get out of your head the uniformitarian, non-Christian, non-biblical view. That's what this is about, having a biblical view of when Egypt arose. Egypt arose after the flood. Egypt did not reset itself. It started from those who could build a ocean liner. Um, you know, they, they built an ocean liner in 100 years, and then they built a tower. They used bitumen. They used all of those things, and they knew that technology of tower building before they went to Egypt. So Egypt's not a reset. Egypt's a copy minus, right? And so that's what we've been able to do. Uh, my people's culture in Scotland, um, when, when, when the Romans arrived, we did eat each other. That's why they were scared of us. We ate them as well. Right? <laughs> we may have stolen the bagpipes off them. Yes, you heard me correct. We did not invent the bagpipes. We're the only people who can really put up with them today. So we, they built a big wall across Scotland to keep us out because of what we were like. But Christianity turned us from that into a much less warlike group. We, we're, we're still pretty good at fighting amongst ourselves and fighting the British particularly. But in reality, you'll find that that is not a reset until you actually put Jesus Christ in the picture. Right? Then we abandoned all those things that were really detrimental. When you look at Egypt, Egypt was another culture that took up snakes. Look at what's on the heads of the pharaohs. Look at what they paint and glorify so much. So when you look at Aboriginal culture, it's not a reset. They left India. They had steel. Yes, steel. They had metal use. They had writing. They had all sorts of boomerangs, bows and arrows. They arrived in Australia minus all of that. So no, no reset. Sadly, a downhill one. And if your son is learning, and I, I, I'm glad to hear you verify that, is learning that bringing the spirits in, uh, the smoke is representing the spirits, and they're actually asking the demons. These are not Christians. These, these are not um, Christian spirits or anything like that. They are not angels. They are demonic. And I, have, as I said, it's my suspicion that the dingoes are going wild because this is being allowed. Yeah. There, there will be a, a, a reset, of course, and the Bible talks about that. When the Lord Jesus returns, there will be a reset. And there will be no more crying or tears or pain. And that's uh, something we, we we encourage all people to be prepared for. Preach it, brother. Preach it. That's right. But only the Creator can do that. We can't right. do that. And it won't be on this planet. Too far gone. All right, that's great. Thank you for that, Sam. And thank you for uh, engaging engaging on Rumble as well. That's great stuff. Um, any other questions before we wrap up? We've got about four minutes or so, Sam. Um, uh, we've got one more. Here we go. Um, 
I'll add this into the into the mix here. Uh, this comes in from Shogiwa. Uh, question, is there a link between the rainbow serpent and the promise of God to never again destroy the whole earth by a global flood? Joe? Hmm. I mean, you're going to be the more expert on this. Um, rainbow serpent, Aboriginal, I suspect there is a, a um, historical link there somewhere, particularly as you can trace down the... Um, the, the the accounts in in um genesis in some of these aboriginal stories but um i don't know how you'd be able to definitively show a link okay uh, because you referred to me i'll take that up jay just yeah. wanted to see if you could on the spur of the moment say something I say, yeah. um Thank when you. you look at what joe did he took his knowledge of genesis and made up an answer uh in generic terms uh, and that's what the Aborigines have done. They started with the knowledge of Genesis, right? And then in the loss of writing, it became a gossip version from then on without any back reference. Uh, so the stories of their flood became more and more gossip level, right? Until they added details, subtracted details, etc., and turned it to their own use. And in the absence of God's record, the devil sneaks in and turns it to their use to make the serpent glorified as the redeemer and in many cases the creator of all things instead of the real god who you should honor and acknowledge now when you look at the rest of it think carefully jump down from the european migration to australia jump down to 2023 and you will have noticed a six barred rainbow appearing all over the place now, number six is the number of man. Genesis chapter one, man was made on the sixth day. Number six becomes 666 after Adam sinned, right? So you will find that man's number becomes the number of the man of sin. So it is no coincidence that the rainbow is again being perverted. This time you can't see the serpent visually, but you can see the consequences. Who uses the six colored rainbow? The homosexuals who are in rebellion against the biblical teaching on sex who uses the six colored rainbow the the people who want to do their thing without any reference to the number 777 the real creator and the seven colored rainbow and it's a perversion of the rainbow because the rainbow represents a covenant of the most holy god whereas six well at the very best you can well that that the kids in school still carve 666 on the desks because that's the number they want they know very well that it's the number of evil. So I, I suspect, Shogiwa, you would go and you would find that the origin of that rainbow serpent has first of all become um, a perversion of the story, then the adoption by Satan. There is a real rainbow serpent, by the way. They're beautiful, right? The colours are... It's a black one, but the colours just glitter. and iridescence. It's not rainbow striped or anything like you yeah. see the paintings of it. And you will have noticed in Diane's serpent, that's an official one. And you may have noticed there's a little rainbow on its neck. It's too late to bring the picture back up. But the rainbow mm. serpent bore the rainbow, carried the rainbow, saved the people. And sorry, the serpent saves nobody. He's doing today what he's always done, getting you to accept the lie about the creator. We must own the land. No, the land traditionally has owned you. But neither of those are biblical positions. You Christians are trying to decide what to vote in this referendum. 
vote according to what Daniel said. The land is the Lord God Almighty's and he gives it to whoever he wills. So pray that that will be his will be done. I think Amen. I think we should we've really got to acknowledge as well that there's at least uh, three to four hundred different nations, if you like, or, or, or tribal groups of Aboriginals. And they, yeah. don't, they don't just have one homogenous sort of uh, legend or one homogenous set of stories yeah. or anything. There's many different ones and many different languages even. Um, so we just really need to be careful and acknowledge that because um, uh, various Aboriginal groups have very different views on, on quite a number of these things, yeah. including the voice. They certainly do. All right, great stuff. Well, it's about time that we wrap things up, folks. And uh, um, a reminder, um, by the way, um, I'm at, it's, it's, it's not that we're trying to do less conversations. It's actually the opposite. We're trying to get it back to the original concept rather than doing lots and lots of segmented bits, uh, which is really what Creation Conversations ended up being, us all doing our own little thing for a while. We're trying to get back to a singular topic where which we all present and discuss and get that content out there. So the ministry reports are still important. We'll be putting out the ministry reports as a podcast interview type situation. We'll be doing the evidence news reports again with Diane and myself, but it's really trying to get creation conversations back to that original concept of creation conversations, right? Conversing around a topic. So um, if anything, we're gonna try and push a more sort of um, concise and specific amount of content uh, through the creation conversations that we're doing. So yes, as a reminder from next week, we will be doing an hour and a half broadcast as we will be going forwards. We are starting with content straight away uh, as we dive into it. And uh, next week, we're going to be dealing with the concept of flat earth. So uh, that should be a, a fairly interesting topic to dive into. Um, John, am I right in thinking you may not be here next week? Is that right? That's, that's liable to be correct because that's the day our museum opens. Diane's got a good session. Glenn's got a good session on preparation. And we'll have the whole thing up here next week. Be a very busy time. Absolutely. So uh, do join us next week as we discuss the questions around flat earth and everything else. And a reminder that on Monday, and watch out for this, on Monday we will be going live with our first ever creation research TV channel, a 24-7 broadcast of all content creation research. So watch out for information about that and join us on Monday at 9 p.m. UK time as we launch that. That's sort of uh, mid-afternoon for you in the States. And um, that's, on, that's on our YouTube channel. Um, that is just on so our YouTube. You, you guys are fully aware it's on our YouTube channel. So don't um, don't be confused. It's, like it, it's, it's only going to be on, on YouTube. It's not going to be on Facebook or anything like that. It's, it's exclusively on YouTube um but yeah and we'll, we'll try and get it onto our onto our websites at some point as well so you can uh, see all the information there but other than that thank you all very much goodbye god bless we will see you next week and just before, uh, yeah. just before we go actually okay. i just wanted to show this because this is a really nice comment we've had on uh, rumble uh, i thought I'd, sh I'd show this here um rds more people need to hear your message thank you speak freely speak proudly god speak my friends the rgs thank you so much rgs that really does mean a lot um and that's that's the that's what that's why we do it is because you know we, we we are getting the truth out there of, of God's word and and spreading His His love and and um, what Jesus did on the cross. That's 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 it's not it's not about creation. It's about Jesus. That's the end at the end of it. You know that's why we Amen. do it. 
Mm. Amen. All right, folks. Goodbye. God bless. We will see you next week as we discuss the flat earth and stay tuned for more creation research content. So the non-flat earth. Well, non <laughs> well, yeah. Discussions <laughs> around. Anyway. Catch you next week, folks. See you later. Bye-bye.